Today we'll begin back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. Uh, you'll see some of the text in the notes today, but not all of it. So I want you to be able to have, have reference for it. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the pew there, and you're welcome to take that with you uh, uh, to have one for you personally. Have you ever seen what a group of boys do around a fire? It's pretty fun unless you are a leaf, a stick, or a small bug. Uh, uh, boys just have something inside of them that when they see fire, they feel the need to throw things into it, right? And the only thing worse than a group of boys around uh, a fire is a group of men without any women around, um, because they'll throw everything that their moms told them not to throw into the fire, uh, aerosol cans, gasoline, just to see what happens. Uh, not that I have any personal experience with that, but it is kind of fun. Um. <laughs> so Paul, as he's addressing this Corinthian church, uh, well, he points out <laughs> that they've been acting like a, a group of boys around a fire. Rather than treating the fire with proper respect and handling it in an appropriate kind of a way, now these boys have been picking up whatever fuel they can find and throwing into it. The fire, of course, here is the fire of conflict. Every family, every relationship, and even every church has its fair share of conflict. And so it's no surprise that we would see it show up in the context of the Scriptures and the New Testament in particular. But what might be a surprise is just what kind of stuff this church had been throwing into the fire. I mean, it wasn't enough that they had conflicts, that they uh, were at each other's throats, and that they were demanding really terrible things of one another. They had taken it even to a further step than maybe you or I would ever have thought to do. They had started dragging one another into court. So just here, as I read the first few verses here, so that you can kind of begin to wrap your mind around the fire that these guys have been stoking. If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous? and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, believer goes to court against believer, and that before unbelievers. You can hear Paul's frustration, even as we just read it and listen to it. The, the context here is pretty, pretty simple. In the, the context of the Corinthian environment, there were various local courts that if a dispute came up between a neighbor or between co-workers or even between family members, the practice was to take that dispute to the, to the local courts and they would resolve it. Well, the Corinthian church here had learned what all the rest of the people in Corinth had learned, that those local courts were particularly accessible 
if you had the right kind of money or influence, those courts could easily be turned to support the outcome that you wanted as long as you got to the judge first. And what Paul appears to be calling out here is that that had been happening, and it was no surprise that it was happening out among the, the pagan secular environment, but what had been happening for, with, in Corinth was that the church members were doing it to one another. They learned how to manipulate the courts in effect to steal from each other. And so Paul hits the ceiling on this issue, and he says, this is this is wrong. It's a moral failure for you that you have this kind of dispute, but then you're dragging the name of Jesus into court in front of those who don't believe, who already think this whole Jesus thing is a joke. You're dragging his name into court and making him look bad too. And so he throws up his hands and says, this has got to stop. Well, in the process, while we might not uh, see this playing out so often, uh, we also find ourselves in, running into conflicts. We find ourselves facing temptations, perhaps not to drag one another into courts, at least not a legal court. But isn't it any different than what we might do in dragging someone to court, the court of public opinion, on a social media feed, or maybe uh, around lunch when we're offended or hurt by what someone has done or said, and we talk to one another uh, with, with other people about that person. We want them to, to know just how justified we are in our anger and, and what we think ought to happen. We are very prone to dragging others into courts, not face-to-face, -face, but by dragging them into the court of gossip or of slander. And if we don't address that, then we too will be like these Corinthians, throwing fuel onto the fire of conflict. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, Paul points us to, uh, to two principles that can help us, rather than fueling the fire of conflict, to instead bring about peace in the midst of that conflict. The first principle that we see there is it's kind of played out in these verses that we've already read. It's the principle that we are to live up to our potential and not down to our offense. When Paul begins to teach this church what they ought to be doing, he starts by reminding them that someday they will be the ones who judge the whole world as well as angels. Now, Christians have wrestled with this for a long, long time. And some have, have argued that that means that one day uh, Christians will stand in, in a place of judgment and all the non-believers will be brought before them and then Christians will be the one to, uh, to point out who goes and who doesn't. <coughs> that's, that's probably not the best way to think about this, though, because the Scripture is pretty clear that, that Jesus is the one who is the judge of this world. And so uh, probably a better way to think about this is to remember that on that day when Jesus stands and all of humanity is brought before him to face up for every thought and intention and action, that in that day, what the lives of believers will say is that faith and trust in Christ was possible. 
And for all of those who have rejected Jesus, who have rejected a life of of trust and dependence and relying on Him for salvation and allowing Him to reshape their lives, to look more and more like Him, for all those who've rejected Jesus in His way, what the lives of believers does is stands up there and says, look, this could have been you. Your life could have been formed to look like Jesus. And so in that day, for those of us who are Christ followers, we will sit with Christ as he judges, and our lives become witnesses to the power and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus, our Savior. And so, if that's where we're headed, for for a moment when we put on display the very mercy of Jesus in our lives and his ability to transform us, to, to prioritize his kingdom and his priorities over our own kingdom and our own priorities, if that's where we're headed on that day, then couldn't we also do that now? Couldn't we also choose kingdom, his kingdom priorities over our own kingdom priorities. So Paul says, look, if you, if you want to learn how to not just throw fuel on the fire of your conflict, then you need to live up to that potential place that you're going, that future place, knowing that on that day, your life is supposed to, to bear witness, to, to declare and show off the mercy of Jesus. And if that's where you're heading, then why not let your life show off that mercy right now? This is what we're called to as we live up to this potential. And Jesus was very fond of of reminding us that even right now, we had a responsibility to, to handle these matters. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to give instructions for how the church is supposed to handle conflict. When someone has a, an offense against you, they sinned against you, you're to go one-on-one to that person. And then if that doesn't resolve it, then you're to take two or three others. And then if that doesn't resolve it, then you're to bring it before the church. And Jesus instructed that we as his people, his followers, we have the responsibility and the authority to handle these conflicts. We should not be paralyzed in them. We know what it is that we're supposed to do. But Jesus also would put his finger on the truth that sometimes the conflicts that we have are really, well, they're bringing to the surface some problem that's much deeper down. If you look at Luke chapter, uh, chapter 12, Jesus is involved in a conversation with a guy who comes up to him, and I'll just read it to you briefly. It's a short story. Chapter 12, verse 13, someone comes to the crowd, comes to Jesus and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And listen to how Jesus responds. He says, friend, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. You see, what Jesus did was he refused to arbitrate for this man because he knew 
that the real issue in this man's heart was not a cry for justice. Give me justice against my brother. The real issue in this man's heart was a cry for stuff. Give me money because what I really love is my possessions. It it points us to the truth that sometimes the conflicts that we have really are revealing that in our hearts we have prioritized lesser things over people. We've prioritized our stuff over the people made in the image of God around us. And so, that means that one practical thing that that we can do is that every time we find ourselves in a conflict with another human being, it ought to be an opportunity to examine our hearts and make sure that there's not a deeper conflict between us and the divine being. Every conflict is an opportunity to examine our hearts and make sure that our hearts are right before God before we then go and try to make things right with a brother or a sister. In this way, we live up to the potential that Jesus has seen in us because someday he's going to seat us with him when he judges and arbitrates. But perhaps the most challenging truth that Paul points the Corinthians to, and I think that all of us are called to, shows up in the verses that follow. Listen to verses 7 and following. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And listen to this. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The second principle that Paul points to, to keep conflicts from becoming explosions, is to call us to love sacrificially, remembering what was sacrificed for you. In the midst of a conflict, when your spouse doesn't measure up to your expectations, again, when your kids take advantage of all the good that you've given them and treat you like you're not even there, or even when your church fails to take care of you in the moment 
of your greatest need and trial. In all of these moments where there's a real injustice in your life, what the Apostle Paul calls us to is to put up with that injustice. Rather than demanding our right to be repaid for that harm which was done for us, he calls us to put down that right, to willingly sacrifice our rights and justice. Why? Because we remember what has been sacrificed for us. So here's the truth, the powerful, liberating truth that that you and me, we are never more like God than when we choose to forgive. And we're never more like the devil than when we don't. Jesus sacrificed himself to atone or to cleanse or to pay for all of those moments in which we unjustly treated him as less than the king and sovereign ruler over all creation, you and me included. Rather than demanding that you and me pay back every moment of rebellion, of insensitivity, of of frustration and anger at him for not doing what we think we want him to do right then. Rather than demanding justice from us, Jesus paid for that injustice with his own blood, covering us, cleansing us. And so, in light of that sacrifice, the immense sacrifice of his own life for us, why would we not be willing to sacrifice our stuff, our status, our reputation, the satisfaction of having the other person say, you were right and I was wrong? Can't we acknowledge the infinite value of the treasure that we have in Jesus and his sacrifice for us and not have to chase after little trinkets that are just passing away in this world? We can love sacrificially as we rest in the immensely valuable sacrifice of Jesus for us. But there's one more place in the Scripture that I think we have to talk about before we move on. Uh, This is a hard passage that has, uh, um, well, folks have struggled with for a long time. In verse 9 when it says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? A lot of folks will look at that and, and they'll start looking at that list and they think, I don't know, but I, I'm kind of there. As I think about this, greed 
uh, 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 verbally abusiveness, uh, uh, struggling with sexual immorality. Uh, these are present issues for a lot of folks. And so I don't think we can, can read this without talking about what does this mean? Well, one way that might help you is to remember that what, what Paul is arguing here is not a causal relationship between these activities and their exclusion from the kingdom, but rather a logical one. He's, he's not saying if, if you have these sort of things uh, in your baggage, if these sort of things show up in your luggage, then you are out and you ought not to even wonder whether or not you can make it into God's kingdom. That's not where he's at, because if that were the case, then none of us would have any hope. None of us would have uh, any hope of being able to be in God's kingdom. But what he is saying is that if you love your personal gratification, which is what is at stake in each of these categories, from sex to money to status, what's, what's at work in each of these is a heart that loves personal gratification more than it loves the value and treasure of Jesus. If your heart loves these things, then logically it just makes sense. You've already chosen which kingdom you want to be in, and it's not Jesus's. And so if, if you find yourself uh, looking at this and going, well, I just don't really care. I want what I want, and uh, I'm not going to change that, then you might need to be concerned about where you stand with the Lord. If there's, no, if there's no tension and no struggle in you and you just think, well, I'm just going to do what I want and I don't care what Jesus says, then, then that ought to be a moment where you ought to give yourself some pause and really wrestle with whether or not you have known him in a saving and life-transforming kind of a way. But that's different than if you find yourself struggling with any of these areas, even conflict. If you find yourself struggling with handling conflict in a way that would honor God, you know what you need to do, but you find yourself having a hard time doing it, that, that struggle in and of itself is no indication that you've missed out on God's kingdom. But rather, think of it like this. If, if you've been outside and it's been really, really cold outside, and you've been working and, and your hands are so cold that they're starting to get stiff and numb, and then you come inside, and you go stand by the fire. Do your hands immediately feel warm? No. The effects of the cold linger. You have to kind of unstiffen your fingers, and the numbness starts to fade, and, and eventually you, your whole body will become warm. Well, in the same kind of a way, what Jesus has done for us is he's taken us out of the cold, and he's brought us in by the fire. And there are still lingering effects of being out in the cold. All of us have lingering effects of that sin nature inside of us, the heart inside of us that prefers our personal gratification over anything else. But yet, when we are washed and sanctified and justified, we are brought into the house Jesus' house. We are brought to the fire, Jesus himself. And as we begin to warm ourselves in his presence, those things begin to fade away. 
This is the way that Jesus works transformation in us. It's the way he transforms even our conflict to be something that can bring him glory as long as we will continue to come to the fire. And and instead of being like a little kid and throwing more fuel on it, we humble ourselves before him and say, Jesus, show me what's in my heart that needs to change. Transform my desires so that they will match yours. Today, come to that fire, come to Jesus, and allow the cold to be warmed away by the power of his presence. Let's pray. Jesus, apart from you, we are stuck out in the cold. And apart from your choice to show us mercy instead of demanding justice from us, and we would have no hope for anything else. So today, would you cause our hearts to rest in and relish and rejoice in the great forgiveness and washing and justifying work that you have done through your blood. Jesus, let us come into your presence. And as we do, would you change us? Would you not let our hearts be hard and proud But instead, let our hearts be humble and soft and ready to be formed by you. And would you make us a community of people who right now give evidence to the immense value that you are so that we can be ready for that day when seated with you in the heavenlies, You judge the world. Do that work in us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.